Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of September 2023 and this is episode 313. And welcome back after our short break. On today's podcast, I talk to historian and academic Dr Nathan Wise about his recent book, Anzac Labour. This book explores the horror, frustration and fatigue surrounding working life in the Australian Imperial Force during the First World War. Nathan spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Australia. Nathan, and welcome to the Dispatches podcast. May you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested interested in ANZIC labour and the Great War. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, Tom. Um, My interest really began when I was a young boy, and I think a key spark, an early spark, was my grandfather taking me to uh, the Australian War Memorial, which is sort of Australia's version of the Imperial War Museum in London. Um, Very similar sort of layout design. We have a lot of war memorabilia. It's a a fascinating museum. Um, And walking around there and and seeing the art and, and reading the stories really sparked this interest in the Great War as a whole. So as I grew up, I was reading a lot of histories. Uh, Australia's involvement in the Gallipoli campaign was very prominent. It is prominent in that national narrative of the First World War. Um, But then when I went to university, um, there weren't actually many opportunities to study First World War history until I got to the third year of university. And one of my lecturers said, I expressed an interest in doing honest research. And he said, well, before you do anything, before you pick a topic, just go to the local archives and have a look at what they've got. Um, this is uh, John McCutton, who was the author of Rural Australia and the Great War. He said, just go check out these First World War soldiers' diaries and letters. And so I went to the archives and started reading and was hooked on these voices from the past talking to me. Uh, and, and yeah, that was 20 plus years ago. And um, that type of archival research, reliance on soldiers' diaries and letters, memoirs, uh, has really been the, the mainstay of my research for over two decades. So we're going to look at your book, Anzac Labour. Um, I wonder whether we could start by looking at the occupational backgrounds of the rank and file of the Australian Imperial Force. Were they members of the urban working classes engaged in, say, factories and sort of other industries? Or were they men largely drawn from the agrarian sort of rural Australia based in sort of farming and agriculture? Yeah, this is a very important question, and it depends on who you are. So Charles Bean, who was the official historian of the First World War uh, and a war correspondent during the First World War, so he actually landed on uh, Anzac Cove, Gallipoli, on the 25th of April, 1915. So he witnessed the landings and he experienced, um, as a war correspondent, he saw the trenches and he saw the nature of, of trench warfare. He he uh, spruced this, this idea that um, the typical Australian soldier was the Bushman. He... He had a certain motivation in his writing as as the war correspondent, as the official historian, he was trying to craft an image of the Australian soldier as a unique individual, as in particular, as different from the British. One of the most important things scholars of Australian First World War history need to understand is that Australian writers and Australian soldiers were looking to assert a sense of national identity and distinctiveness to separate their identity from British identity. 
Australia had only been federated in 1901. And so a lot of these scholars and writers and, and yeah, were looking for something unique. Um, so Bean liked to argue that the bush, the Australian bush, the Australian environment had shaped the character of these individuals. And he kind of always liked to talk up their rural backgrounds, their regional backgrounds, their bush backgrounds. He argued that these men had been fighting fires in the bush and they were hard country labourers. That was the myth that he um, purported in the, the early years of writing. The reality, um, which <laughs> we've kind of discovered over the decades since, some, some great authors, authors Ken Inglis, um, Dawes and Robson, who have performed more detailed and statistical analyses, reveals that prominently urban working class, um, about 70% of the AIF were um, working class, like clearly identifiable working class men, mostly from the the key metropolitan areas of, of Sydney and Melbourne, um, Brisbane and, and, and Perth and so forth. But yeah, largely that urban working class labouring industries, as you know. So the, these individuals obviously join up or volunteer, I should rather say, and they, they enter into the Australian Imperial Force. Now, what, what was the effects of military training and acculturation in, in making these civilian workers into Australian soldiers? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that Australia had uh, compulsory military training prior to the First World War. So from 1911, compulsory military training was introduced by a change to the Australian Defence Act. And this made some form of military training compulsory for young men, uh, youth in particular. So a lot of these men, it's estimated that about 175 to 250,000 had some form of military training prior to 1914. So they had some sense of, of what military discipline was like. And I emphasize, I'm trying to use my words carefully here. Military discipline is, is very different to the environment of war and the environment of full-time um, military life. But they had some experience of that. And so a lot of the, the certainly the first contingent of men who signed up in 1914 and 1915, very young, um, average age, and a lot of those men had prior military experience of, of cadets, which they brought into the military. Um, at the same time, though, there's that, that, that military training, but they're also... Australia doesn't have much of a martial tradition. Australians in the 1900s and 1910s were reading um, great British works of military history. Um, Deeds that won the empire, for example, is one of the staples of Australian boy was one of the staples of Australian boyhood reading during this era. Um, and Australians looked to British heroes um, and, and British military history predominantly. Um, yeah, the, the the frontier wars in Australia were. were sort of looked cast aside we sort of Australians didn't like to acknowledge that and yeah we looked to Australians looked to British history so this is kind of blending of some military some military training experience not much of a martial history blending with this I this desire this pursuit of an Australian identity and what happens is sort of a melting pot of these factors in the training camps of Australia such that men understand the need for discipline and on parade ground they can be very disciplined um, but there is a sense that training to be a soldier was not real soldiering. And a lot of them talk in their diaries and letters about, I can't wait to be a real soldier, or we're not real soldiers until we leave for war. And so there's almost a casual approach to military service um, in Australia. Many of them don't consider themselves real soldiers, and they use this term quite a lot, until they've embarked, or others until they've reached Europe and, and, and the Near East. Um, so, yeah, it's it's it's... In terms of sort of previous military training and indoctrination, it's 
a real blending of ideas, a blending of factors. You have men from very different backgrounds, of course. As I said, a lot of them were working class, but you've got the the middle class who predominantly formed the officer class in 1914 in particular, and they they have ideas of discipline, and there's a struggle within this new Australian imperial force to implement those ideas um i spoke about this in some of my research where it's sort of a uh, a confrontation of middle class ideas of discipline and what the ideal soldier is versus these rank and file ideas of when discipline should be um adhered to um so there's this australian tradition of not saluting officers um many working class men sort of um believed that they had working hours and sort of personal hours in a sense um they could be very disciplined in the front lines and then very ill-disciplined. And Australians developed a very poor reputation for discipline because of their um, relatively poor behaviour when out of the line. Um, and there's a lot of data to, to point towards, um, for example, Australian rates of incarceration, uh, which are magnitudes of the rates of British and other Commonwealth soldiers at the time. So, yeah, I think a large part of that comes from their the, their desire to assert an independent identity. They are trying to assert that they're different to British soldiers. They are um, they like to be seen. A lot of the, the working class men, in particular, like to be seen as larrikins, um, as uh, recalcitrant in a sense, um, who will follow orders when needed, but don't like to just follow orders on a whim. That makes sense. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, it, that just makes sense. It's really interesting that there's a British notions of morale and discipline are about saluting, t- looking tidy, and being efficient and being, you know, um, yes sir, no sir. And then the Australians arrive; and they're scruffy comparatively, and their discipline's in erratic, and they completely confine this sort of British notion of um, discipline. And they are they they are meant to have low morale and poor combat performance as a result of their turnout. And that turns out not to be the case. If anything, they are highly efficient on the battlefield and gain a reputation. And this contradiction is always really funny. I know it's, I know what I've said is very, very much a caricature of British attitudes to discipline, but it's sort of this civilian culture that the Australians bring into the military and how that clashes with, I suppose, the British military and the civilian values that many British volunteers bring into the military. And that's really fascinating. I, lo- I love that sort of tension. Yeah, I think a large part of that also comes from a, a really keen desire to prove themselves as worthy of Ellis Ashley Bartlett, who also who's a British war correspondent who wrote about the um, the landings around Anzac Cove in, in April 1915. He wrote um, that this was Australia's baptism of fire, that they were, I quote, worthy to fight alongside the great British heroes of Mons, the Iper and Neuve Chapelle. Um, and I think this is really what a lot of Australian soldiers were mindful of. They are mindful that they are, this is a test of the national character. Uh, this is their opportunity to prove themselves as something different to, not a, worthy of their status as an independent nation, and that they are um, to prove their strength of character. And I think as, as sort of, I mean, it's an idea. It's just sort of this, this, um, this, this, this uh, ideal that Australians are striving towards throughout the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, how do we prove ourselves as an independent nation and so forth? What is our national character? And I think a lot of the Australian soldiers sort of became convinced by this idea that they are striving for, um, striving to prove their independence and um, 
unique identity as distinct from the British in particular. There's a lot of contrast in Australian soldiers' diaries between the Australian character and the British or the Australian soldier and the British. And they tell themselves this story so much that they they believe it and it reinforces their um, their morale and, and discipline in action and their sort of drive for or success. So this this idea of an imagined community that it seems quite mm. interesting. That it's it's a very abstract idea, but it seems to be very consistent. And yeah, I don't like the idea of national character, but you could argue there is a national consciousness, uh, or certainly in the way they describe it and that they perceive it, and it but it has definite motivational outcomes. That's fascinating yeah. in that sense. Yeah, yeah, it, it both drives discipline and morale in action. Um, because a lot of these men are saying we don't want to let Australia down. Uh, we want to prove that Australians are worthy. A lot of the time they're saying we want to prove that we're better soldiers than the British or the Canadians and so forth. Um, but at the same time, part of that identity is also a sense of larrikinism and we don't just, this, this idea that they don't just follow orders, that it, a lot of that is a myth um, that they like to talk up and that is sort of reinforced through culture, through their poetry, through art, comics and so forth, through trench and troop newspapers. They like to... They like to play up this idea that they are rebellious and larrikins, but at the same time, it's an ideal that many do adhere to. And they, again, the, the Australian rates of ill discipline and incarceration, again, magnitudes that of the British and other Dominion forces, um, reinforce that this, this these ideals actually shape behaviour. Um, and so yeah. just just for our, our English, uh, or I suppose British Isles audiences, what exactly is a larrikin? Oh, sorry. So, oh, okay. It's a bit, it's got a bit of a background history. So it's in Australian civil society in the 1990s, 1900s, um, young um, youth um, groups or gangs were referred to as larrikins and they uh, were much like, um, well, troublemakers um, who sort of were keen to see themselves as troublemakers. This idea that young men and boys uh, pride themselves on being rough, tough, unruly. And so there's some great work by an Australian historian, Kylie Smith, on the larrikin culture in Australia. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a civil society culture of the 1900s and 1910s. And a lot of the, the men who enlisted in the First World War um, had experienced that culture and had respected elements of its sort of independence of character, um, its resistance to authority. They kind of um, admired some of those elements and it made its way into the culture of the rank and file of the the AIF where similar ideals were valued by rank and file soldiers. Um, resistance to authority, sense of independence. Um, yeah. Now, Bean, of course, there's a, um, Graham Seal wrote a wonderful book called Inventing Anzac where he looks at how the reality was a lot of these Australians were... Uh, resistant to authority and so forth, but being being transforms these ideals and these behaviours into more respectable elements. So instead of being sort of resistant to authority, they are creative and independently minded. So he kind of glosses or just sort of tweaks the characteristics to make them more admirable to a more respectable uh, middle class and international audience as well. Um, so yeah, Graham Seale's book, Inventing Anzac, is a great study of how those characters were transformed into ideals. 
I think I think it's absolutely fascinating because where does this sort of I suppose different type of attitude, this national character, come from, and and what forms it in Australia? Why do Australians have this, and say maybe New Zealanders or Canadians don't? I know it might be an impossible question to yeah. ask. This is I think this is coming in the era of emerging nationalism. So we have we see, for example, Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis in the United States in the late nineteenth century. Uh, in Canada, you've got the the myth. The ideal of the lumberjack in Switzerland, you've got the alpine environmental uh, imagery shaping nationalism. New Zealand is going through a similar process. There's all, they're all, all, the, all these countries around the world in this era are looking for elements that reinforce a sense of nationalism. It just happens to be that in Australia, it's coming at the same time as federation. So in the 1880s and 1890s, all the, the, what you see in Australia are separately governed independent colonies that are often in political conflict with each other, not actually martial conflict, but political conflict with each other at loggerheads. Say, there are tariff border tariffs, there are different train gauges and so forth. And then suddenly towards the 1890s, they're starting to think of themselves more as, well, a united land. Uh, and then Federation hits and they're a nation. And everyone's sort of asking these questions, well, what does this new nation mean? What does it mean to be Australian? And these questions are asked for 13 years until 1914. And this is why Australians place so much emphasis on the First World War as a moment in Australian history, because um, it's the first time that, well, well you've got the, the South African War, the Boer War, but this is the first, I think Ashman Bartlett and Charles Bean are really shaping sort of the, the national story. They are saying, Ashman Bartlett and Charles Bean are both saying to Australian audiences back home in Australia via their, their correspondences that... These are Australians in action. This is what it means to be an Australian, um, to have these characteristics, these attributes. That's what they're arguing. And, of course, people at home who were kind of wondering what it meant to be Australian sort of found an answer in the writing of Ellis Ashley Bartlett and Charles Bean. Um, it's Again, it's a, it's a myth, it's an ideal, it's a crafted narrative, but it's one that is hits a very welcome and receptive audience at home. A lot of, and I will point out, this is, predominantly um, a white Australian audience. Um, but this is what sort of Australians of British descent had been looking for. Australia, even in its early stages, is is an, a multicultural nation, um, but it is dominated in, in politics and, and media by, um, by, by British, um, people of British descent. Um, and so, yeah, that really shapes the narrative. This is the narrative they're looking for. One of those themes that comes out is, is this idea of mateship. What was that all about? Yes, this is um, this is interesting. Um, Frank Bongiorno, I'll point out another Australian historian. Frank Bongiorno has done some great work on mateship. Nick Dyronfirth wrote a book on mateship a couple of years ago. Um, it's um, look I, as a scholar, I would argue. My argument is that it's a a, a term that. Australians have used to refer to the universal experience of friendship and camaraderie. I, I, I would argue, I think Nick argues this in his book, that it's not, it's not really uniquely Australian, but Australians like to feel and believe that it is a uniquely Australian character. Um, in particular in the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, when, again, Australians were looking for attributes that made them feel Australian, this, this idea that Australians experience mateship and camaraderie unlike any other nation. This idea permeated throughout the throughout the scholarship and throughout the press and popular culture at the time. Um, again, it was a way for Australians of this era to help 
themselves feel that they had something in common. Australians experience, the idea was that Australians experience mateship the way that no other nation does. They've got friendship, um, camaraderie, but we have mateship because we're Australian and we're unique. This was the ideal promoted at the time. Um, uh, but again, it was a factor that people subscribed to and that helped build morale. Um, again, we see these, these elements of uh, morale building in units around the world when men feel when people feel that they are part of a collective they're more willing to fight together and this australians called that sense of camaraderie mateship to give it a to help give it a more distinctly australian unique flavor um, to help them feel special to enhance morale and i think it was yeah arguably very successful both in terms of selling the message and in terms of building morale and and um unit cohesion incidentally as a side note um the one of the biggest mutinies experienced by British and Dominion Army during the First World War was the Australian mutinies of September 1918, when eight battalions were ordered to disband and several thousand Australian soldiers effectively mutinied. They refused to leave their units. Um, Britain experienced similar um, re rebellion resistances as well, but this is a, a massive thousands of Australian soldiers all at once saying, no, we refuse to leave our units. Um and to my knowledge, not a single man was charged for their role in that that mutiny. It hasn't been called a mutiny um, by many scholars. Uh, it was, in effect, they refused to follow orders. Many officers supported the men. Um, but a lot of this comes back to their sense of unit cohesion, esprit de corps, morale, and their sense of mateship. They didn't want to leave their, their mates. They didn't want to leave their home. Um yeah, by this is by 1918, they were so attached to these these units that they were prepared to risk their their lives um, in 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 staying within their unit. Yeah, I suppose, and I suppose connected with that is that many of these people have probably relatively dull and um, I suppose hard working lives before the First World War. They're working in factories or in 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 various you know dock docks etc. Obviously, this is, this is similar to in Germany and France and other other sort of industrialized countries. How does the experience of their sort of pre-war occupational lives shape um, soldiers' ability to deal with boredom and the demands of service? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, again, this comes the key element here is there are so many men from so many different backgrounds. Um, all with different motivations for serving, different reasons for continuing to serve, and they're serving in so many different areas as well. Um, they're not all um, infantry. Uh, and, and part of my research is sort of highlighting some of the different work that people are doing. Um, so I had one, I can't remember his name, but he, John Bruce, uh, I believe it was, was had a, had a telegraphy background and he became a telegraphist in the army. Um, Thomas Goodwin, one of my favourite soldiers, was a farrier from Sydney before the First World War, and he served as a farrier in the um, Australian field artillery. Um, and there are many examples of men continuing their sort of pre-war occupation into uh, the military. In terms of the sort of workplace cultures, um, again, so much of military life, a lot of what I've done is sort of break down um, the sort of time spent in the military during the First World War, looking at the work that these men are doing, largely revolving around manual labour, both in and out of the trenches. Um, it's a lot of a lot of these men were accustomed to those hours, that, that type of man. A lot of these working class men in the rank and file were sort of accustomed to the demands of manual labor, um, of working in small groups, things like that. Um, but the way they reacted really differed broadly, depending on why they enlisted. So men who there were many working class Australians who enlisted for a job, 
They believe that the army was a job they would be paid, they'd be doing, they'd be following the orders of their boss, an officer. Others enlisted for an invention or for a chance to see the world or because of social pressures and so forth. And they responded in very different ways to the work and to the demands of military life compared to the men who had enlisted for work. The men who had enlisted for a job or work were more, I believe, and I'd argue, more willing to accept um, discipline and the demands of their officers in the environment of war because that's what the job entails. They've signed up for a job, for the pay, you do what the boss asks you to do, in effect. Those who sign up for an adventure and are suddenly being told to dig a canal or dig a tunnel or so forth, they have quite a different reaction. They become more resistant, I think, to this idea that they need to work initially. And we see that sort of tension within their writing. Um, the men who enlist for a job of work, they begin writing diaries of their work. They talk about the work they're doing. They talk about digging trenches because they know this is what they're expecting. This is what they're expecting, so they write about it. The men who enlist for an adventure, they are trying to write a diary of their adventures, and they're struggling to find that adventure in the trenches of the Somme or Pozier. Um, and so there's a, there's a, a sort of, you can almost read the tension as their minds are trying to comprehend the reality of their experience. Um, this is not the adventure, this is something else. And so often they're, they're, they're writing changes um, or they're at a loss for words. There are a lot of silences, which we can read. We can read the silences in in their writing. The, when men say, I have nothing to talk about. There's a lot to talk about in this environment, but they just cannot find the words or they can't find the mental framework to, to put it down in words. Um, uh, one of my favourites, a man by the name of Henry Wyatt, um, landed on Gallipoli and... Um, after several days, he's just writing in his diary, nothing doing, nothing unusual, same thing again. These are sort of two or three line entries in his diary. Now, there is he's saying there's nothing unusual on Gallipoli in April 1915. Now, we know that's not true. Why is he saying this? One of the reasons is he enlisted for adventure. He's not finding the adventure. He's finding the horrors of, of warfare. So he's he's struggling to find the words. So, yeah, we can read those silences um, as this sort of tension unfolds. What about one thing I, I was wondering, does being a trade unionist shape how you conduct your war and in particular your sort of attitudes towards authority? Yeah, another great question. Um, I believe it does. And I, there are a lot of, in particular, the way that these men are responding to dissatisfaction in the workplace. So I don't really talk about it too much in, in Anzac Labour, but in, in my second book, The Pursuit of Justice, I look at um, resistance within the military and how I, I mentioned the mutinies of disbandment. There was another mutiny in early September 1918, the same month, by the 1st Battalion. And Dale Blair, another Australian historian, has he wrote a book on the 1st Battalion, uh, Dinkum Diggers, it's called, and he noted in particular, he was the first to point out how that the, there we go, yeah, there is the, the dominance of trade unionists among the mutineers. Um, and I found the same thing in my research, that a lot of the men who are vocally resisting their officers, who are in, involved in mutinies or protests they're not all the, the, we, can, we can debate the sort of the correct term to use for a while but social action in the military the men who are often involved in social action have that that trade unionist background um and it shapes their writing as well they are more willing to criticize their officers um they feel that a greater sense of camaraderie um and i think a lot of those ideas are borrowed from the trade union movement in australia um, which was very strong during the 19 1910s um so I've covered most of this. 
I suppose in the in the final analysis, do the pre-war backgrounds and sort of this sort of national uh, cultural character, however you want to characterise it, that dominates often the perceptions of um, Australian servicemen, does it help or hinder their military effectiveness on the battlefield? That's a very difficult question. Um, in terms of military effectiveness, um, does the Australian background shape their military effectiveness? Uh, I think what we can look at is the way that they subscribed, that individuals subscribed to particular ideals. And if we can look across history, and when we see good morale in a unit, it's often because the commanding officer has sold um, a a message to their troops that they are. We see it with Montgomery's um, 8th Army. He sells this, this image. We see it with the 51st Battalion during this, the, the Second World War, the, the, the men of the battalion, the 51st Division, sorry, not battalion, they, they sold this image of cohesion and unity. So I think a lot of good morale relies on the men of a unit believing in a particular ideal of, of wanting to fight for almost a common cause in a sense. And so for many uh, Australians, where we can look at combat effectiveness is often where they are trying to prove or trying to adhere to this ideal of Australian combat superiority. Um, I I mean, I, philosophically, I don't believe generally that any particular nation has um, innate sort of martial superiority. I think a lot of it comes from training and morale and responses to experiences. So, look, a lot of Australians, a lot of scholars will praise Australian actions on Gallipoli in, in 1915, but, I mean, the the landing was a disaster. Uh, the landing was a failure. The campaign was a, a failure. There was disorder. Um, hundreds of Australian soldiers who landed um, returned to the beaches because they didn't know what to do. There was a shambles, a mess. Um the narrative is they survived and this was a, a wonderful landing and Ashley Barlett and Bean talk about the glory of the landing. But, I mean, David Cameron wrote, wrote a wonderful book, the 25th of April 1915, where he kind of points to the immense failings of, of that landing. And um, I don't think Australians had really were fully subscribed to their mar- the idea of their martial superiority at this stage. Um, I think by 19, 1917, 1918, they have more self-confidence. By this stage, by 1917-1918, I think the typical Australian soldier has a, a, a different sense of self-confidence. By this stage, by 1918 in particular, um, they they have more faith in their officers. Um, they have more faith in themselves. And I think this is really, 1918, I think this is really when um, they demonstrate what we could call martial superiority. A lot of that comes down to, um, again, Monash and and their officers, but also um, we have, for example, peaceful penetration in April, May 1918, where local officers are, are launching raids on their own initiative um, to s- capture ground, capture prisoners, um, and so forth. And I think a lot of that that initiative comes from their self-belief. Um, maybe it's a, dis- <laughs> a lack of faith in their officers to plan something that will see them through and survive. They believe that, um, yeah, they'd rather trust their own officers than than others. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it's a lot of it comes down to selling a story, selling selling an ideal for soldiers to adhere to. Um, 
And I suppose my last yeah. point, my last point, which arises out of our previous conversation, I've just seen my note. Do you think the lack of a death penalty in the Australian Imperial Force actually hinders or helps the motivation? It's one, one thing I think Haig complains about, that he needs to execute yeah. a couple to, you know, stop them being so naughty. Mm. Um, yeah, Bill Gamage, um, he wrote a book called The Broken Years, and he, I, I subscribe to his argument um, in that it, the, the lack of the death penalty um, hindered good discipline. Uh, because Gamage argues that prior to the Somme, prior to the Australian experiences of Pozier, um, men most men wanted to fight. They were committed to their military service. Whereas after Pozier and the horrors of that experience, the worst that could happen to them was they'd be sent home to Australia um, or locked up. And for many, that was a better option than continued service on the battlefield. And again, we can look at J.G. Fuller's work. Um, J.G. Fuller um, looked broke down the rates of uh, incarceration and he pointed out that I think Australians had, in 1918, they had an incarceration rate. I can't remember the figures off the top of my head. It's about seven, um, seven men in a 1,000 compared to about 1.5 in a 1,000 among all the British and Dominion armies. So Australians had a crime rate, or incarceration rate, almost four or five times that of the other British and Dominion forces. And I think a large part of that is because what's the worst that could happen to them? They couldn't be executed. Um, again, I point to the, the mutinies of 1918, the first battalion mutiny that Dal Blair talks about, and the mutinies of disbandment. There are many other smaller incidences of social action, of protest throughout the, the year. Um, and yeah, what's again, they're, they're thinking what's the worst that could happen to them? Send them back home to Australia, lock them up. At least they get away from trench warfare. So... Yeah, definitely. I think the lack of a death penalty um, in this horrific environment was possibly a, a, a factor hindering discipline. There were many, as I said, this this larrikin ideal, um, but yeah, that's one of them. Nathan, where can people learn more about your works? Uh, well, a lot of publications in, I, I, I published in First World War Studies, published out of the UK, um, Labour History, which is an Australian uh, journal, um, my second book is The Pursuit of Justice, it's hard to see, sorry, published by Amsterdam University Press. Um, more recently, I've been publishing on um, working relationships between humans and horses during the First World War, so looking at the way men worked with animals, um, horses in particular. Um, and where was that? That was published in First World War Studies. Um, yeah, and more to come. Nathan, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.